Well, I can't wait to meet our host. I hear this is only one of his beat parties. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Hey, friends and neighbors and earthlings. This is Harry Day with Two True to Lie. I found an interesting subject to make a podcast episode. And I apologize, it's only 10.35 at night and not after midnight as it should be when I usually do this. But house is empty and quiet except for me and... I'm always forgetting your name. Me and Lucy, our uh, new dog, newer, newish, uh, canine. I was reading about Jim Morrison. I've, I've been a fan of The Doors since high school. I guess I first heard them. My parents obviously did not listen to them. My parents listened to what my dad listened to, which was Willie Nelson, a little Waylon Jennings, uh, some other country music, maybe a little modern jazz for the 1970s. Uh, He had a Jimmy Buffett album, Son of a Sailor, which I loved. That was my first favorite uh, tape to play, and it was blue, unlike most tapes, which were white or clear back then. But they didn't listen to The Doors. Uh, I would have been a infant had The Doors come through Mississippi. Um, so obviously I never saw them. But, you know, there's bands I should have seen having been of age now that I just haven't seen. I mean, I miss Blind Melon. <clears throat> And I'm a huge fan. And went to see him in New Orleans and have my ticket still to to Patinas in New Orleans for the Blind Melon show that never happened because Shannon Hoon overdosed on the bus, possibly in the studio. It's I think that was covered up and they put him in the bus. I don't know. That's just a story. But this interesting story about Jim Morrison and the Doors involves New Orleans. And they kind of touched on it when when they made the movie The Doors with Val Kilmer about going to New Orleans uh, before or after Miami. I'm not sure. I think certainly the movie didn't get it right, so who knows. But... This is the info that I learned after doing some research, and I learned some new stuff about The Doors and Jim Morrison, and uh, a couple of tidbits of, hey, I had no idea. So those will come out as we go through this. It's not a huge list or episode I'm not going to delve too far into Jim Morrison and the Doors besides really why the Doors ended, what was going on, and why the Doors ended. 
Now, there are a few things that are going to precursor this information. Um, no, they're not. So, maybe I'll get to them. Yeah, there they are. I'm trying to remember why the doors didn't do... Um, why they didn't do... Oh, I know why they didn't do... Woodstock. Miami, the Miami fiasco was before Woodstock. Okay, so here we go. The main thing that brought this on was I wondered what was the final live concert with all the members of the Doors. Now, once Jim Morrison died, the, the three remaining members toured and Ray Manzarek sang. They just didn't pull... You know they didn't sell the tickets like they did with Jim Morrison. He was a he was like a uh, he was like a David Lee Roth. He was like a mega front man. He was the star, right? He was a rock star, and he hated it. By the way, he might have liked it that first year, but it wore off real fast. So their last show was on December twelfth, nineteen seventy, at what was known of as the Warehouse Concert Hall on Chapatulis Street. Now, Chapatulis is my favorite word. I did not know this. I did not know there was a Warehouse Concert Hall. I don't think it's still there. The warehouse may be there. But on Chapatulis Street was this hall where they had all the big concerts in New Orleans, apparently. Because back then, the doors were big. Um... So that's December 12, 1970. We'll get into that. And let's reel it back to Miami. They went to Miami. This this is in the biographies and and uh Jim Morrison's last days or whatever those shows go into. Obviously, he had a horrible show in Miami. This was March 1st, 1969. He was extremely drunk. The people that put on the show had an airplane hangar that could hold about 7,000 people. They sold 14,000 tickets. It was a packed sauna, hot fest, sweat fest concert. Um... He was not finishing songs. He was going on rants and raves. He was going on about love, love, love your neighbor, love, love, I want some love. Who's going to give me some love? Women are screaming. People are kind of pushing up against the stage in, in huge numbers. Uh, he had a lamb. Someone handed him a lamb on the stage. And he was holding the lamb while going on his rants and doing some singing. And he made a joke about, should he have sex with the lamb? Nah, you're too young. It was a joke. It's all a joke. Well, he had been to this theater, troupe theater in L.A. the week before, where they undressed and did their play nude. Well, now he's drunk and he has planned a shenanigan on stage. He's got on his leather pants and his white shirt, but what 
no one knows is he's wearing boxers underneath, which he was known not to wear underwear, I guess would be a way to put it. But he had planned to jokingly expose himself. And so he went through the routine of pretending to expose himself, but he didn't do it. People rushed the stage. It collapsed, screaming, police, mayhem, insanity, shows over. So Miami accused Morrison of exposing himself to the audience. And he was brought to trial, which happened in August of 1970. And he was convicted because the uh, prosecutor had uh, procured some false statement witnesses. There was no evidence of him doing it. There was zero evidence, but he was still convicted of indecent exposure, profanity, which he did do most shows, but they were only misdemeanors. Well, October 30th, 1970, he was sentenced to six months in jail, but was left to be free on bond while he while he and his lawyers appealed this conviction, he was not to leave the country. He wants to go to Paris, but he can't leave the country now. Well, the stress of this jail time, he thought he would probably end up having to do. And he had gone from the lifestyle of marijuana, marijuana and acid and various drugs. He had gone into drinking heavy heavy drinking. And through this period of time, 1970, he transformed from the wild lizard king to the bearded blues man, because he loved the blues, and somewhat of a recluse. They weren't touring a lot. They were doing some, uh, they were they were doing work in studio, you know, create, making songs, cutting songs. But he was difficult to work with. He was often drunk. Uh, so November 1970, after the trial ended, him not being allowed to leave the country, they went back to Los Angeles and they went into Sunset Sound Recorders and started recording the early versions of songs for a new album. They they wrote L.A. Woman, Riders on the Storm, Love Her Madly, which was actually written by the guitarist Robbie Krieger and became one of their hits, just like Light My Fire was one of his songs, became one of their hits. He wrote Light My Fire, Love Her Madly. There were other songs he wrote, but Jim wrote a lot of them from poetry. Well, while doing this, their producer quit over artistic differences he gave interview that he quit to spur the band to move in a new direction and also to give Botnik, who was working for the Doors, the opportunity to produce, which he did. Well, they moved from the studio to save money. They moved into a makeshift recording studio 
at their private rehearsal space, which was known as the Doors Workshop. That's a two-story building on Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh, they didn't have an isolated vocal booth, so Morrison recorded in the bathroom doorway. He would either sit or stand in the bathroom doorway in this house for the album L.A. Woman. A very successful album, by the way. Uh, very bluesy, that's what he wanted. And everyone else was good with it, that's what they did. He was drinking through this time. They say he was not drinking heavily while recording. Uh, being an alcoholic, not me, but him, I find that hard to believe. Maybe that was just positive spin. Some interesting footnotes to this album they were recording in this house, known as the Doors Workshop. Uh, Jerry Sheff and Mark Benno were brought in to provide additional backing on the albums. If you don't know who Jerry Sheff and Mark Benno are, they recorded and toured with Elvis Presley through the 60s into the 70s. The band was very excited to have them. That cannot be under, under, overstated. So when you hear rhythms and bass on L.A. Woman, it was the backbone, minus the drummer, from Elvis's band. I had no idea. They cut this album in six days. That's just insane. Now, this is November, December 1970. Well, after Morrison recorded a poetry, uh, I don't know if it was his poetry album that we're familiar with or not, but he went to Village Recorders on December 8th 1970. Now, this is four days before the Warehouse concert in Chapatulis, New Orleans. He felt encouraged to play some of the L.A. Woman material on tour. So on December 11th, The Doors performed two sold-out shows at the State Fair Music Hall in Dallas, Texas. Now, the Morrison that was seen in that concert can be seen if you go online and look up Isle of Wight Festival, The Doors. The, uh, their set was recorded. And he just stands at the microphone, bearded, long hair, eyes closed usually, and he just sings his lyrics he hits his screams where they're needed in the songs. He's solid, but he just doesn't give up any extra personality. He's just not the same shaman wandering changeling on stage. He's like a blues man at the mic, and when he's not singing, he just either looks down or backs out of the way. Um, he is not there for action, but he does his job. He hits it. If you watch, it's really good. If you watch the Olive White set, 
It's the same thing he did. The Olive White set was in August previous, 1970. Now, I Googled, but I didn't Google because I don't use Google. I looked up what he was on for that concert at the Olive White. This is August 1970. Their last show was December. He looked hammered, but he wasn't stumbling. He was just non-reactive. And what I found out was before they went on stage, Jim Morrison sat down with Pete Townsend and they drank two bottles of Southern Comfort, not pints, two quarts of Southern Comfort, which is a quarter piece. Jim probably drank more. Just, I'm saying that because it just logically seems right. Maybe not. No wonder he was like he was on stage. Apparently he was the same in Dallas, but he hit it and they played well. The band opened their first concert in Dallas with Love Her Madly. Okay, I'm trying to find find something. He struggled a little bit with the older material, the early material, because they hadn't played live since the Isle of Wight Festival in August. This is December 8th now. I hope I'm not confusing anybody. The set included the Changeling LA Woman. They closed with When the Music's Over, which is where Ray Manzarek kills it, especially the album version. The concerts were well received. Uh, it proved to the people around the doors, fans that saw them, and people in that business who booked them and were aware of the shows, that they were still capable of a live act. And so it led to an extra performance that they could get quickly in New Orleans, Louisiana. That was the next day after the double, double show in Dallas that night at the Warehouse Concert Hall on Chapatulas Street. So let's peel it back a little bit. Since 1968, Jim Morrison had been threatening seriously and not seriously to quit the band and do his own thing, be a poet, live in obscurity, uh, do his own thing. He was just flamed out from it, I guess, being the magazine cover rock star. Well, by now, it was kind of obvious he was heading that direction. On the 12th, they played the warehouse in New Orleans, and that turned out to be their last live performance. They started out the same material, and midway through the set, a drunken Jim Morrison began to slur the lyrics to Light My Fire, probably his least favorite song because it was so commercial. 
And that just wasn't Jim Morrison, right? He would interrupt songs with little speeches, and he would he was making poorly received jokes, quote unquote. At one time, he sat down in front of the drum riser while Robbie Krieger or Ray Manzarek played their solos on the songs, and at times would not stand up to finish singing the songs after the leads, after the solos. Finally, drummer Dinsmore prompts him to get up and finish singing on on his feet. <laughs> he must have been really drunk. He's in New Orleans. Who knows what he did before the show. They finished the end, very long song, sometimes 15 minutes. And at the end of it, Morrison, quote, loses it. And he takes his mic stand and just starts bashing it into the floor of the stage over and over and over and over. Now, I don't know whether the song is still ending in its crescendo or it's just over and he's smashing the stage. He winds up bashing a hole through the stage, pushing the microphone stand down through the stage, bashing it through the stage. The people who ran that venue said they've never seen anything like that. No one's ever done that before. In interviews later, no one has done that since. Uh, the owner had to do something to patch the hole for future shows, so he just got some plyboard and nailed it down and carved some kind of a, some kind of thing to Jim Morrison. I don't have it right now. Doggone it. He carved some honor to Jim Morrison on the floor. Let me find it, because it's right here. I know it's right here, right here, right here. Supposedly there was a... that The show was recorded, but no one has ever brought forth those tapes, those reels. So I've got, I've got just a few more good things, but I really want to find what he did. Oh, it's, it's that simple. Following the door show at the warehouse, the runner of the warehouse named Fox repaired the damaged section of the stage, and when he learned of Morrison's death, he went out and carved in memory of Jim Morrison on the patch. And from time to time, he noticed different artists who were on stage would look down and see it and go, oh, wow, and then get back into their own lives. Because Morrison was a legend, right? He still is, maybe to, to my generation and above me, maybe one below me. I don't know how far, how much these young people know or care about The Doors um, or older music, but it's not our problem, right? So let me pick back up where I was. I said Morrison had threat had quit. Blah, blah. Okay, that's why I need, what is it? It's my green tea. Ooh, ice cold. 
so he threatened to quit. Threatened to quit. They had the meltdown in New Orleans. And they were like, yeah, tour's over. No more bookings. We're just going to go back to the studio. It was said by members of the Doors, his their band, the band members. Ray Manzarek said he swore he saw Jim's spirit leave his body at that moment when he was freaking out. Quote, his shamanistic energy, the soul of Jim Morrison, flowed out of his body and with it the will to perform. They hadn't seen it in him for a while in the first place. Certainly not since the Isle of Wight show where he just stood there. He was lacking all energy. But he sang. That's weird because sometimes he could sing it and sometimes he couldn't sing it. But I guess no one's perfect. Um, the, doors, the Doors agreed to stop touring and they went back and and did whatever they needed to do to finish up L.A. Woman. Uh, that's engineering and sound and producers. You know, the if they need any fill-in with the band members, they call them in. They mastered it. They released it on April 19th, 1971, and it reached number nine on the Billboard charts and remained in the charts for 36 weeks. Not quite a year. Three months after the release, on July 3rd, 1971, having finally quit the doors and moved to Paris to be an obscure poet, Jim Morrison was found dead in his bathtub of heart failure, likely from an overdose. Now, if we ended it here... We go from him, alcoholic, exposing himself, but not really exposing himself, because he was a jester. He was a clown. He, 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 he's what was his quote? Sometimes I feel like the clown who blows it at the most crucial moment. <laughs> I love that's not that's verbatim or paraphrasing whatever. I love that quote. It speaks to me. <laughs> I've, I've, I've lived that at times. You know, walk away from what's right. I don't really do it much anymore. But I'm older too. Now some interesting things that bring us back to New Orleans. Since this is supposed to be a Southern culture podcast. Though half the time it's not unless you consider me Southern culture or a piece of Southern culture, not obviously the Southern culture. Um, we can seed this in the fact that New Orleans was where Jim Morrison and the Doors were done touring as a full original band. Same thing happened with Blind Melon. You know, Shannon died, and they never toured 
again as the original Bond Mellon. They picked up uh, Travis Warren, I believe his name is, who was 10 years younger than Hoon, loved all of their work, could sing like Shannon Hoon, and now he tours with Blind Melon and does a great job. I've seen, that's the Blind Melon I've seen, not the original, sadly. I know people who used to go to school with members of Blind Melon, uh, the three from Mississippi, not Shannon Hoon or the rhythm guitarist, but anyway, there was, that was the only time the Doors played in New Orleans, by the way. But it wasn't the first time Morrison had been to New Orleans. And this leads to the other little nugget of what? That I found very interesting. And I wondered what their music was like then. But we'll get to it. Because I, I don't know. Um, let's reel it back into the 1960s. On June 20th, 1969, Jim Morrison attended a screening of the unfinished Doors documentary Feast of Friends at the Atlanta International Film Festival. During a November 6th, 1969 interview, that's two days after I was born, with the Village Voice, wait, wait, during a November 6th, 1969 interview with the Village Voice's Howard Smith, Jim Morrison described driving from Atlanta to New Orleans, which means he crossed Southern Mississippi. Actually, he would have gone through uh, Hattiesburg and then down. Um, Morrison described driving from Atlanta to New Orleans with a friend. And he recalled hanging out on Bonaparte's retreat, the infamous Decatur Street Bar. Um, interesting thing I also learned this week because they were recording uh, days before November 6th. They were recording that week, actually. Um, on November 4th and 5th, they were recording Roadhouse Blues for whatever album that came out on. And... That made me think that the fifth was when they recorded the master. But the other night I was listening to The Doors. And, you know, on Spotify you get all these bonus tracks that were recorded during those albums' sessions. They put all this new stuff in there that no one's heard, that never was on the CD tape record, etc. And there was a version of uh, Roadhouse Blues recorded in the studio where it was obvious that Morrison was hammered. And I'm certain that was on my birthday, the day I was born. And I just, it just tickles me. It doesn't mean anything, but it tickles me. So now let's go back. Morrison went to Atlanta then he rode with a friend in New Orleans. He went to Bonaparte's retreat on Decatur Street. And supposedly, in various interviews, the drummer Phil Eart of the band Kansas 
was there and described Morrison singing Light My Fire with White Clover, which was the previous name of Kansas, at the Roach, which is someplace in New Orleans, and reading poetry. Because of that encounter, Earhart believes their band White Clover, now Kansas, got the call from promoters and producers or whoever, handlers, for their band to open for the doors in New Orleans on December 12th, 1970, at the warehouse. And during that awful concert that the Doors put on, Morrison brought Earhart and other members of White Clover, a.k.a. Kansas, out on stage to do a song with the Doors in his drunken stupor. So what I'm getting at here is Kansas opened up for the Doors on their last live show. Who would have thought that? What did Kansas sound like in 1970? I have no idea. I would have to go to Spotify and and just see. I mean, could they be anything like the Doors? They were so original. The Doors were so original. They were uh they were like dark theater. You know, people have called them one of the pillars of rock and roll. And they they were a flash in the pan, 67 to 70. They were like three or four years max as far as like being the doors. How much life, how many lives can a man live in three years of being in a famous rock and roll band? to be burned out completely, three years. You would have to push it daily. I don't understand how else, you know, you you get in a band, you've been trying to do this stuff, you have all these ideas and this music and you want to perform it and you get to do it and you become a success and then you become a major success And then I guess what you do is you revel in the spoils over and over and over. I guess it depends on whether you have the willpower to control it, to control yourself. Apparently, he didn't have any self-control. And, you know, had he not OD'd, in the summer of 71, he probably would have had some other organ failure within, gosh, a couple of years. If he drank, like it seems like he drank, like when he drank two bottles of Southern Comfort with Pete Townsend, who I think is still alive. He probably dialed it back. He probably saw the edge and dialed it back. The ones that are still around, whether they're still with their original bands or not, 
and have seen it all, had it all, done it all, and been to that edge and have been able to back off. That's power. And I don't mean evil power or abused power. That's like the power to say no when you need to. And I find that admirable. I I mentioned, uh, I can't think of his name now, Dave, David Lee Roth. He's still alive and performing. That's amazing. Keith Richards, you know, need I say any more? The memes of Keith Richards, like, you know, playing guitar around the fire with soldiers of the Confederacy. (laughs) Oh, man. I guess that's why people remember him, Jim Morrison. Because he burned real bright and then he flamed out young. He made a big mark. It's it's was he even trying to make a big mark? I think it happened without his uh blessing. But really all this info is just you know, it's fodder for the mind. It, this podcast, no, this episode really just had interesting information to bide your time. Maybe something to talk about with someone. You may know someone that loves the doors and you're like, hey, did you know their last show was in New Orleans and Kansas opened up for them? 1970. Crazy. Well, all right. I ain't got much more to say about about this. There's there's so much more that could be delved into, but it wouldn't connect in with this or the message, which I think I might have gotten across, which is to uh, learn to self-preserve yourself and help others who need it. If you think they can, they'll listen. You know, sometimes people just won't listen to help, and you just got to let them go. So, get in touch with your fam. Talk to them. Let them know you're good. Ask how they are. Make new friends. People you know that possibly would be friends. You know, make your new friends better. Uh, Be kind to strangers. Good Lord, be kind to strangers. You never know what someone's going through and all they need is something positive to pull them back from that edge that we talk about. And it looks like my phone's about to die. So, peace!
Yeah.